Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. There are no words to adequately describe the pain and loss suffered by the victims' families. This loss caused by these evil, vicious, senseless attacks. And all of Saskatchewan agrees with you. We must do more than that. We must turn our attention to what is needed now. First, Karen's support for the victims and their families. That's Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe addressing... uh this killing spree that really has just rocked this country. And there's still a manhunt going on for one of the two men accused in this killing spree, which happened at uh, James Smith Cree Nation early Sunday morning. Damien Sanderson was found dead Sunday night. His brother, Miles, though, remains at large. And they are accused of killing 10 people, injuring another 18 in a stabbing rampage that started in their own community. It was a targeted rampage of breaking into homes and then cars of family and friends and then turned into targeting random strangers in their attempts to flee. Now, this is a small community of less than 2,000. I mean, these are families and friends. They all know each other. They share traditions and customs, and they all share a lot of hardship, too. Things like dirty drinking water, in many cases, lifelong poverty or mental health issues, and always the threat of addiction or drugs with alcohol ravaging uh, the reserve and, and increasing crime. A lot of the threads on social media following this massacre from those in indigenous communities pointed to drugs that are consuming their reserves and they beg for help. And now that will come too late. I want to bring in Melissa Mabarki to this conversation. She is normally on my show to talk about things like uh, indigenous energy issues. But of course, Melissa, you um, are with Treaty 4. So this is a reserve that you know very well. In fact, when we started chatting over the weekend on Messenger, I mean, you have family that lives on that reserve. How, how is um, th- this is not just rocked the country, but certainly you and, and the entire indigenous community? It's definitely uh, put us in a state of shock. Uh, we started to hear uh, what was happening on that reserve, I would say about 10.30 that morning. At that time, um, we only knew of, you know, the, the people who made it um, in these attacks. We didn't know the number. We didn't know the details. We just heard that something was happening in a community that was north of ours. Um, I don't know if we were notified because we were having a rodeo uh, over the weekend and we had, you know, quite a number of people out out there I don't know if it was just a precaution or for us to, you know, look out for this vehicle, but uh, we were notified and, uh, you know, we kept a watch out for this uh, black SUV and none, it didn't show up and, uh, you know, we didn't uh, experience anything in hours. Uh, but by about noon, we started to hear the horrific details of what had actually happened. And um, and it just sent shockwaves through my community, um, you know, and it, we asked the question, like, how how did this happen? Who who was it that was doing this? Like, and why would they do it to their own community and their own friends and family members? Like, it was just shocking. And we're still dealing with that ripple effect through 
through our communities across Canada because at any time, this can happen to one of ours. You know, we're dealing mm. with the exact same thing as this community is, you know, drugs, alcohol, um, you know, parolees, um, you know, convicts coming into our community. Like, we're just ravaged by the same same social issues. And mm-hmm. this could happen at any time, anywhere. So it's very unnerving, you know, that one of the suspects are still out there, um, you know, and we're, we're just on high alert, you know, we're experiencing all the same anxiety and it's, we just, we just need them to be found um, at this point. I would think, and correct me for the characterization, but is this the kind of place where they they would all know each other? Um, you know, maybe they wouldn't lock doors, and and this would have, I would think, come out of nowhere. This definitely. I mean, if it started at five o'clock in the morning, you know, nobody would be suspecting that someone knocking on their door, um, you know, was about to murder them. Uh, mm-hmm. They targeted homes. They targeted specific community members. And the last count that they had with the number of um, homes that were broken into was eight, you know, so eight of the crime scene sites were homes. And mm-hmm. it's just really unnerving because this is everyone's worst nightmare. Um, if you've ever lived on a reserve, this is this was one of my worst nightmares. I We always heard about break and enters. We always heard about, you know, armed robberies. And this was always something that we were afraid of. So just for this to happen is just, just awful. Is there a feeling, and, and it might be too soon to even talk about it, but is there a feeling that, that the warnings didn't come fast enough that those, because the 911 call started coming in at 542 and, and people on that reserve didn't necessarily get a stark warning until about 10 o'clock that people were being randomly targeted. They had been told by about 715, stay in place, there has been a stabbing on, on the reserve. But is there a feeling that too little information came in um, and didn't warn people? The warning, um, so the calls came in at 540. Um, The first warning went out, I believe, at 7 o'clock to the surrounding communities. But by about 730, all of these, like everything had happened in that one, one and a half hours to two hours. You know, they were able to get into homes. They were able to, you know, they had the ability because people were unsuspecting. You know, we Mm -hmm. think that that alert should have gone out right when they start receiving calls because they were receiving calls from different individuals at different locations. So they had to have known something was up even before visiting the first site that they went to. And this is the part that is concerning because if people had been notified at that point, they wouldn't have opened their doors at all. And if they seen this black SUV coming to their house, like they wouldn't have allowed that person in. And it is just, I, I think it was too little too late by 7 o'clock, you know, because by then they had pretty much targeted and went to every home they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's actually pretty scary. Well, uh, certainly maybe they thought they knew uh, Miles and his brother, um, you know, uh, in that reserve. But nonetheless, I mean, this is a, both of these guys had been on the reserve. Miles Sanderson had certainly had been on that reserve. He had been, uh, he had violated parole in May. He was uh, wanted on a warrant 
Um, but to your point, whether it's drugs and or alcohol and or poverty, um, rehabilitation, support services, uh, there's not even support to get a, po- a police officer there to actually pick up those who violate parole. Um, and, and so all the warning signs that would have been very clear for everyone to see went on, you know, ignored. And so basically it's almost like Miles Sanderson was a ticking time bomb within that community. He definitely was. And um, at this point, we don't know how much time he spent on the community. I mean, he has a uh, criminal record that's two decades long. So I imagine, mm-hmm. you know, the people in his community, um, you know, they weren't uh, so, you know, friendly with him because he actually threatened people who live there. So I don't know how much time he was actually on the reserve before this happened and if he was hiding on the reserve. And like you said, like, we don't have access to support support services for, you know, people who um, are on parole or people who are wanted. Like, we don't have the ability to be able to help our community. Uh, So it's really up to the police. Like, if he was MIA since May, it was up to them to locate him. And this all could have been prevented if that had happened. Can you explain some of the traditions? Because obviously in, in the direct aftermath, I mean, a lot is going to go on with the investigation, searching for this guy, lots of questions. But what happens in tradition and ceremony when a situation like this unfolds? I was reading the story of Earl Burns. He was a patrician veteran. He got killed protecting his wife and kids. And apparently the elder chief circled him, placed an eagle staff before him. But what would traditionally happen, Melissa, in a, in a situation like this to those on the, on the reserve in remembrance? I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the funeral, um, you know, but when we do have someone who passes in our community, oftentimes it's a four-day event, you know, from the time that they pass, we have four days to lay them to rest, and there's traditions that happen in between, but when you look at the number of people, like, we just don't know how this is going to work, like, are they are, are they going to have a funeral for all of them at once? Or mm-hmm. are the families going to have separate funerals? And if they're going to have separate funerals, then this is something that can, you know, take weeks um, to even yeah. uh, finish. I mean, it's we don't know how they're going to handle it. Um, you know, we don't know what um, what each family wants. So, you know, we have to be respectful of that as well. And sometimes, you know, like it, it is delayed like this for whatever reason. Um, so we... I don't know. I, I just think we just have to wait and see what happens. Um, there's some funerals that we do want to go to, but we don't know if they're going to be combined or if they're going to be separate ones um, throughout the weeks. But we'll we'll hear soon, and um, you know the families will let us know when when they're happening. But this is not something that is you know, goes away. Um, you know, it might might fade from the headlines, but it, it this is multi generational. This is a, a this is trauma that that will now inflict uh, multiple generations uh, in these in these communities. That community is going to take years to heal. I mean, this is not something that they're easily going to um, just forget about. And I imagine yeah. that they're going to be dealing with you know post traumatic stress disorder. You know, everybody mm-hmm. was impacted. Not just their community; it was the communities that were closest to them as well. Like there was just a just a lot of anxiety uh, Sunday night. Like after we had yeah. heard what had happened, like people couldn't sleep. People were worried about their own well-being, um, not knowing where they were. You know, we just found out yesterday that Damien was found 
uh, deceased and but Miles is still at large somewhere so there's just a lot of anxiety that's happening right now and sure. you know it's it's even for myself it's, it's gonna be with me for a while like I still have family that live on the reserve and I'm yeah. always gonna be you know afraid for their safety now because at any point somebody could do this and that's a scary thought Melissa, I thank you so much for sharing your time with us and giving us a, a deeper look into what maybe might be going on in the scenes, and uh, we'll keep our thoughts with you in the community. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's uh, Melissa Mabarki. Uh, she's very familiar with that particular area. A GoFundMe campaign has been set up. It's called James Smith Cree Nation. It's on GoFundMe. They've already raised 89000 of their $100,000 goal, but they uh, they will need a lot of support. Miles Sanderson, Damien's brother, may have sustained injuries. This has not been confirmed. But we do want the public to know this because there is a possibility he may seek medical attention. All right, that is Saskatchewan Police, one of the many, many, many updates that they've been giving on this uh, killing spree. And um, Miles Sanderson, who is still alive, is who police are looking for now. A guy that you've been hearing in the news is very well known to police. You look at his record, it goes back about two decades. And he is known for extreme violence when intoxicated. So, you know, uh, documents that have been um, discovered when it came to his parole board decision back in February reveal that those making the decision to release him noted his violent tendencies. It said, quote, your criminal history is very concerning, including the use of violence and weapons related to your index offenses and your history of domestic violence. So the parole know, the parole board knows that Miles Sanderson is dangerous and violent, and yet they decide, well, he's no threat to public safety, and they release him. And then in May, he violates parole, and he's remained at large for months. And so a lot of questions, like why? Why was a guy known for extreme violence left in a community where he was a ticking time bomb? Did police try to pick him up? Was he on the reserve? Did he go in and out? What, how, why weren't they monitoring him? And I'm sure in the aftermath, uh, we'll again see all the warning signs very clear for all to see that went ignored. And then questions about the RCMP. You know, did they send out the alerts when they needed to? Because the first calls came into 911 at 545 Sunday morning. And at that time, people were actively being killed on that reserve. And then at 712, an alert goes out from the RCMP to shelter in place for calls of stabbings on the, the, on, the, on the reservation. But it wasn't until 10 that the RCMP would give its first clear, stark warning that victims were being targeted and attacked randomly. And so over four and a half you know, hours, these killers created 13 crime scenes and yet police did not really make it adamantly clear to those on the reserve that they were being hunted. And again, it would take us another 10 hours before we would start to get a, a picture of the scope of this. Let me bring in Jim Van Allen, a threat and risk assessment consultant now with Investigative Solution Network, but a former manager of the OPP where he did a lot of criminal profiling uh, with that unit. Good to have you. Thanks, Alex. Jim, on first blush, because there's so much um, that we don't know, and certainly a lot will come out in, in the days and months to come on this thing, but how, how, uh, how, how could this guy have just been, you know, with his kind of record, been able to kind of get into the public and, and just disappear without anybody picking him up or, or seeing all these signs? Well, he was going to get 
when he was released, he was released on statutory release, having served two-thirds of his sentence. And unless there's some overriding reason, most offenders get out on statutory release. So he's out on conditions. He was under supervision by a parole officer. And then it would appear he revoked his parole, stopped seeing his uh, uh, caseworker, and uh, was um, considered unlawfully at large from May 2022 till present. Yeah, so there, I mean, there, it's... There was a, he, he had to be released. Um, he was under conditions, and he chose to um, uh, contravene, <clears throat> excuse me, contravene his parole. Yeah, I think I think in the yeah they do, um, and I get generally speaking they will get picked up, and so there's going to be a lot of questions, Jim, as to whether or not um, you know the the reserve and those who live on it say they just don't have the the kind of resources where they can pick up parolees who come into their you know homes and communities to hide sometimes from police. They know that the police won't show up there, um, so there are going to be questions about that whether he was able to hide within that reserve from from police. There are going to be questions about whether restorative justice played an issue in this case. You know, were they trying to mm-hmm. be more flexible and give second and third chances? Sure. Um, you know, given that there may not have been enough support for this guy, that if he drank or got into drugs, that he would be, um, you know, triggered in, into violence. Because clearly, when you look at his rap sheet, he's got a very clear pattern of violence, regardless of whether it was robbery or other crimes. He was known to be a violent guy. He's hitting a lot of risk factors in the, the known history and what's going on. Uh, it didn't matter if he had a minor. Uh, record with what he's done at this point, he is uh, sky high in terms of risk. But I agree yeah. his record uh, substantiates his uh, uh, risk to reoffend, certainly. So now it becomes, um, we know that that uh, his brother was killed or, um, you know, on Sunday, I guess. And, um, you know, there's a warrant and there's a big search going out to get this guy. They don't know where he is. It's suspected that he's still in the Regina area, but he'd know that area very well and uh, could probably find a lot of places to hide. Sure. He's been, uh, like I say, unlawfully at large since May. He's very committed to uh, not being controlled by the justice system and not being apprehended. Uh, he's going to be very committed to avoid uh, apprehension now with what has gone on. Uh, he's gone to ground, and he's going to be difficult to find. This is going to be a real process of staying in touch with uh, family, friends, uh, uh, recent associates that might be known, checking in on them all the time, uh, developing a relationship and getting as much information as you can. But largely, it's like waiting for him to surface. This information about being in Regina is starting to get dated. Uh, mm-hmm. So we really don't know where he is. And now the travel time, uh, should he be in a vehicle, he could easily be uh, in BC or Ontario. Um, yeah. So they're, they're probably going to be watching for uh, any related uh, criminal occurrences that are going to uh, suggest that he's still on the run, whether he does a home invasion, uh, that any theft of firearms would be uh, an interesting link to look at, uh, carjackings, vehicle thefts, uh, break and enters, uh, anything like that should be a very high priority in Regina right now to uh, either rule him in or rule him out as a suspect and 
give a new lead, give some new life to uh, this manhunt. Yeah, I mean, the longer it goes on, obviously, the more dangerous it gets because there's the issue of whether he'll commit more crimes and kill more people um, or if he'll, you know, go out and take whatever he can with him. Um, you know, it, we don't know the ending to this story. So what would be the biggest risk at this point is that he is going to be hiding for months because, you know, I talked to Melissa Mabarki just before this. You know, she lives in that area near those um, reserves. I mean, there is a, a real fear um, of, of this guy striking again. And until he's found, that fear is going to remain. Yeah, I'm sure it will in, uh, in that uh, Cree nation uh, up north. Um, they are still content the information that he was in Regina was reliable. Uh, so he's moved. He appears to have moved out of that area. Uh, the biggest risk is he's, I don't believe this is going to go on for months or even a month. Um, he's desperate. He's going to commit another crime. The worst case scenario would be if he uh, gets his hands on firearms, which should be easy enough for him. Um, he's going to commit another crime. Either it's going to be violence against a hostage or violence against police. I don't think it's going to end well in terms of uh, suicide by cop or uh, a police-involved shooting trying to uh, apprehend him. Uh, he's a desperate, Obviously, dangerous man. Yeah, no question about it. Um, you know, given um, the fallout on this, it's, it's this is going to be a long time investigating this, a lot of questions coming up. What is the biggest question in your mind, given your experience, um, you know, profiling people like this and or in, in manhunts like this. But what what is the big question that you think needs to be asked um, as to, to the entirety, the, the big picture on this? Well, right now, uh, why? Why and why now are always the big questions uh, for me surrounding uh, questions of motive. Uh, I think the, the Mounties are being very uh, close to their chest with their cards right now, uh, what they know. I believe, from my experience, that anytime you get a case where this level of violence goes right to people's houses, uh, there's yeah. often a revenge component in it, and I would like to know why he's targeting some of those people. Was there a current conflict involved with them? Were they witnesses in his previous um, uh, convictions that sent him to a federal penitentiary for five years. Uh, what is the connection between the offender and the victim that led to this uh, mm. explosive uh, murderous behavior? Wow, it's just uh, such early days on it. But uh, Jim, always appreciate your perspective on it, and we'll uh, hope for better days and certainly a conclusion to this uh, quickly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Have a good day. You too. That's Jim Van Allen joining us uh, about uh, how he sees this thing playing out. I mean, there are just going to be so many uh, conversations and questions uh, to be raised after this. But uh, early days, no question, there's a lot of mourning going on in that particular community and the Indigenous communities at large.